You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, this is a very challenging subject. There's much that we don't understand and there's much that we have not been told. So I ask that you would draw near and help us to seek to understand what the, the Bible teaches. And Lord, in some cases, some extra light being shed on the subject by the spirit of prophecy. But we're talking about something that we only know, so to speak, a bit of the hem of the garment. And so we really need the Holy Spirit. Please forgive us, Lord, of our sins. Please. Father, address anything that would distract us and help us to be on, on target as we, as we discuss these things together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Welcome. There's another booklet here for those that are coming in. Uh, we're going to continue on the uh, Holy Spirit again uh, for uh, a few minutes, and then we'll go to the blue booklet. So we have a lot to cover. We were talking, I think we ended with talking about some of the synonyms of the Holy Spirit. I meant to look at my spirit and Holy Spirit, uh, but I failed to do that, so I apologize. But let's start on the purple booklet. Did you bring your purple booklet this morning? Who all is missing a purple booklet? If... Uh, you may need to share, I only have I only have one more extra of the purple right now. I apologize about that. Hold on, I, miss, I misspoke. I have a few extra, so if someone doesn't have one. Ah, well, that would be the wrong one. Yeah. Okay, does everyone else have one? Do you have a purple one, brother? You need one for your wife. Okay, does everyone is happy? Let's 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 continue. Now we're going to be on page twenty-six. You know that we have to cover a lot of territory. You just lost your seat. Sorry about that. Okay. So we're going to look at the activity of the Holy Spirit in the early church just briefly. Uh, we already talked about how the Holy Spirit was poured out as promised. We don't need to read any text on that. Um, do you have it a desk somewhere? Praise the Lord. Good. Um, and then in terms of the activity of the Holy Spirit in the early church, and I'm just going to do bullets. We're not going to read a look at every text, but the Holy Spirit instructed. Okay? The text says gave commandments to the apostles. The Holy Spirit appointed leaders. Being filled with the Holy Spirit was a criteria to holding office. I'm at line 635. They said to look for a, a person of honest report full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. In 639, the Holy Spirit filled believers, and we have this filling going on. It wasn't just a one-time experience. Uh, line 637, the filling of the Spirit was sought on behalf of others through prayer. So it was a priority. Line 656, on several occasions, the Holy Spirit predicted future events. Speaks of a prophet, uh, line 658, and there stood up one among them uh, named Agabus and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world. So here the Holy Spirit is moving people, and we know that it's the Holy Spirit that moved people to write the Bible, it says. It was given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 665, receiving the Holy Spirit was a key part of Paul's experience in coming to Christ. Uh, Ananias said, I've been sent that you might receive your sight and be what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, today we don't worry too much about people who have found Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit, do we? Uh, we give them information, but I think we fall short. Um, line 671, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Gentile believers was accepted as proof that they were to be uh, a part of the church. Line 682, the Holy Spirit's presence and direction was sought in determining and confirming God's will. Line 689, and as I began to speak, 
The Holy Ghost fell on them as one on us at the beginning. Line 699, the Holy Spirit's presence and work was looked to for theological direction. Line 705, and God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. So this presence confirmed theological understandings. Line 713, the Holy Spirit was recognized as the authority in making believers spiritual leaders. The Holy Spirit, line 718, communicated through various believers, etc. Would you agree that the Holy Spirit was very active in the early church? Everywhere you turn, the Holy Spirit is busy. Not only that, line 721, the Holy Spirit selected ministries. 724, Acts 13, 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And by the way, I'm looking at a booklet on the Holy Spirit, Christ's representative that we're following, uh, that goes with uh, this seminar. So if you're listening to this, you need to get the booklet so you know where we are in our discussion. Line 727, the Holy Spirit selected missionary venues. The Spirit said to Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. Are you looking for a purple, purple one? one? You know, unfortunately, I don't have any more. I apologize, brought a bunch of blue ones today. You can look on with someone else close by. Anyway, the Holy Spirit said to Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. Uh, and then in Acts 11, it speaks of, And the Spirit bade me go with them, nothing doubting. This has to do with Peter. Um, line 74, The Holy Spirit supernaturally transported Philip to another location. Acts 8.39, The Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. So the Spirit is very involved. Totally involved. Would you agree that, 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 that we see the Spirit? Yeah, I think so. And uh, line 749, the Holy Spirit gave believers boldness in witnessing. Boldness in witnessing. Welcome. We are out of chairs, but we do have a chair right here. Oh, is there one in the back? I didn't notice it. Oh, there's a couple. Okay. Unfortunately, we're going over part of it, and I didn't bring any extra of these booklets. So, uh, But when we get to the blue one, I'll have one for you. And then 757, the Holy Spirit gave the early believers success in witnessing. Now, after the, to the book of Acts, we find many texts that speak of the, of the work of the Holy Spirit. Line 775, Romans 5.5, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. Now this is Paul speaking of the presence and work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.3-4, at the end, line 781, Speaks of those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Welcome. There's a chair right there in the middle. Two. Well, there's this chair here. I won't be using it. So. And then Galatians 4, 6, line 786. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And we can continue. You know, there's, there's the text in... Titus 3, 5 to 6, line 792, Titus 3, 5 to 6, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And once again, 796, it, it, it speaks of the election according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit. And it goes on. So the Holy Spirit, once again, is, is mentioned many, many times in the rest of the New Testament. We don't need to look at every verse, but the point I'm trying to make is the Holy Spirit is very involved, apparently, as a, as a real person. And uh, in Revelation, uh, there's the, the messages of the Holy Spirit communicating to the churches. And one of our teachers at the seminary, I think maybe at Southern, found and actually listed all the times that you find the Spirit communicating in the book of Revelation. So it's, it's throughout the New Testament. And as we saw yesterday, we also find mentions of the Spirit often in the Old Testament as well. Old Testament, New Testament, it's mentioned throughout. Um, now, the Holy Spirit in more recent times. 891, speaking of our time, Joel 2.28, and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters, etc. You know that, 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 that verse from Joel 2. 
And I have listed these partially because of references to current times. 901, Ephesians 5, 18 to 20. 901, Ephesians 5, 18 to 20. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, if you look at the footnote at the bottom of the page, it's a quote from Ellen White. She is actually writing to the school in Battle Creek, Have you not been afraid of the Holy Spirit? At times this Spirit has come with all-pervading influence into the school at Battle Creek and into the schools at other places. Did you recognize His presence? Did you recognize His presence? Did you accord Him the honor due to a heavenly messenger? When the Spirit seemed to be striving with the youth, did you say, let us put aside all study, for it is evident that we have among us a heavenly guest? Let us give praise and honor to God. Did you, with contrite hearts, bow in prayer with your students, pleading that you might receive the blessing that the Lord was presenting to you? She was speaking of a revival that had been taking place at Battle Creek. So she spoke of a heavenly guest, and did you accord what? Him, right? Yeah, she, and she speaks, uh, she writes to the school in, 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 in Australia about that the Holy Spirit is walking among us. In Ellen White's writing, the Holy Spirit is a very real presence, presence and person who comes, you know, when we are in gatherings uh, and those kinds of things. And then line uh, 906, sometimes the Holy Spirit comes with a tidal wave of power. It says, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Look at the footnote at 23. The glory of God came into that meeting. It seemed at times at the commencement of the meeting that the glory of God was about to drop upon us. It did not come only to a few, but at this time, like a tidal wave, it swept throughout that congregation, and what a time of rejoicing. She actually speaks of this tidal wave of blessing that came with the Holy Spirit. I think it's really sad that we've come to accept services without the presence of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? We have, we have become accustomed to lukewarm spirituality, and the Holy Spirit will not come and bless those gatherings because He comes on His terms, not on our terms. And because He is not present, instead of blaming God, because I think sometimes the feeling is, we prayed, we came together, what happened, right? But Ellen White says, regarding revival, it is our work by, it says a few things, it's our work by, first, what's the first one? Confession? What's the next one? Humiliation? What's the third one? Repentance? And what else? Earnest prayer. Many of our meetings start with prayer, they end with prayer. We said we've had a great meeting, where is God? Perhaps if we started with confession, humiliation, repentance, we would also and then add the earnest prayer to it, we would have the blessing. But in too many cases, we're satisfied to go home without the blessing. And she thinks of camp meeting where they were taking down the tents. I'll be right with you, brother. And she says the blessing hadn't come yet. The angels were waiting to bless the encampment, but the Holy Spirit had never been asked to come. And so they left without the blessing. What a pity, coming for all that time, journey. Yes, brother? Yeah, I just wonder what the reference was for that. I, I, it's I in Selected Messages... Um, but I don't know it by memory, but that's an easy one to find. It's the one that starts with the revival of true godliness is our greatest and most urgent need. Oh, right. okay. It's that quote. Anyway, uh, and then 910, sometimes the Holy Spirit is experienced as a baptism of power. Acts 1, 5, for John truly baptized with water, but he sh ye, ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Another footnote there. When God's people will believe, when they will turn their attention to that which is true and living and real, the Holy Spirit in strong heavenly currents will be poured upon the church. That's from Manuscript 21, 1900. Then another one. This is an important quote. Before giving us the baptism of the Holy Spirit, our Heavenly Father will try us to see if we can live without dishonoring Him. Yeah, God looks. Can we live without dishonoring Him? Do not think that you can have great spiritual blessings without complying with the conditions God himself has laid down. Okay? Do not think that, that you can expect a blessing. But we should be unwilling to, to go through and not receive the blessing. What do you think? Yeah. So, now, the Holy Spirit as a distinct member of the, of the Godhead, 
We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I want you just to look at a few. Um, we already looked at these the other day, but just a few from later texts. 941, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. 941, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Okay, there we see them listed as three distinct people. Anyway, we see the three. And then, uh, just 9.54, Hebrews 9.14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much the blood of Christ, through the eternal Spirit, to serve the living God? We see three distinct people. And there are many of these texts that show the three together. Now, there are the three statements of Ellen White, and we're not going to look at many of these at all because we, they're listed, some of them, in the, in the Blue Book as well. But notice the quotation starting at 990. Teach them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, a personal God, and the Son, a personal Prince and Savior, and of the Holy Ghost sent from heaven to represent Christ. Okay, she actually delineates them individually. And at times she actually mentions each one with a descriptor. I'm sorry I didn't bring extra booklets of this, but we won't be too long. And then, 997, the Godhead was stirred with pity for the race, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit gave themselves. 107, three distinct agencies, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost work together for human beings. Three distinct agencies, three distinct entities. And then if you go further in the booklet, we'll just look at some of these, okay? 1016, the three great powers of heaven. 1086, the three highest powers of heaven. 1097, the three great worthies. I'm just doing the bullets. You can look at the quotes later on your own. Um, line um, 1115, the three highest powers of of the universe. Line 1176, the three great worthies in heaven. Line 1201, the three great infinite powers. Line 1246, we're going very rapidly. The threefold powers. Line 1255, probably the most famous of all of these, is the heavenly trio. There are three living persons of the heavenly trio. In the name of these three great powers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those who are received, who receive Christ by living faith are baptized. I'm reading about 1262 at that point. And then the eternal Godhead. Look at 1268. The Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, comma, the eternal Godhead, okay, is involved in the action required to make assurance to human agents, etc., uh, 1287, powers infinite and omniscient. The Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, powers infinite and omniscient. Receive those who truly enter into covenant relationship with God. Uh, 1310, or 1299, three dignitaries and powers of heaven. 1310, three distinct agencies. 1323, three great and glorious heavenly characters. Let me read that. 1324, the three great and glorious heavenly characters are present on the occasion of baptism. 1357, towards the end, the three great instrumentalities of heaven cooperate for their complete and perfect unity. The three highest authorities in the universe. Line 1386, shall be called great by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost in the kingdom of heaven and uh, Heaven, the three highest authorities in the universe with all the heavenly family shall call great, etc., etc. Well, we don't need to go too much further. Would you agree that Ellen White seems to believe in three separate entities? Yeah. It is unequivocally clear. You cannot argue. You can say, you can argue what the Bible may or may not say, but if you get Ellen White involved in the discussion, my only point in sharing this is that those who say that Ellen White really didn't support three distinct people. They just haven't read Ellen White. You don't need to have even the slightest concern about where she stood in this discussion. Okay? And, and when we look at the blue booklet briefly, we're going to see some more things. Now, 
There's two appendices that we don't want to look at, but you should look at them later. The first one are actions manifesting the personhood. In other words, these are verses, and it's a re repetition of before, but I've tried to list all the things ahead of time that, um, that show actions that only a person could do. Okay? And there's a whole list of them. Um, one of them is Christ referred to the Holy Spirit with the masculine pronoun. And we had a little bit of a discussion about that earlier. Um, and then there's all these verses. So you can look at them ahead of time. But then there are the actions on line 1643 manifesting the deity of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit was involved in creation. The Holy Spirit brings life. The Holy Spirit is the author of faith. The Holy Spirit brings to remembrance the teachings of Christ, has advanced knowledge, brings about supernatural attributes, enables supernatural utterance. You know, it seals. It can be blasphemed. Those are not things. You can't blaspheme me, right? Only God can be blasphemed. Only God can be blasphemed. So the bottom line in all the things that we're discussing is the Holy Spirit is a real person. And I know this might be overkill, but today I don't think there's anything wrong with overkill in this subject, right? Yeah. And so um, the Holy Spirit is real, and we don't really need to discuss further. But some people have suggested that Christ is really only a spiritual presence. The question I ask if Jesus, when he went to heaven, and I already mentioned this, well, that was Christ, but the Holy Spirit, you know, we can, we can say things against Christ and be forgiven, but somehow when we go against the Holy Spirit, it's blasphemy. And if he was just kind of some spiritual manifestation of Christ, I don't think that would be true, because whether you speak to the real person or to the spiritual manifestation of the person, it's the same thing. And so they're treated as separate entities. And, and I believe with all my heart, based on what we've shared, that he is a real person. It's interesting. This is from Acts of the Apostles. Paul realized that his sufficiency was not in himself, but in the presence of the Holy Spirit, whose gracious influence filled his heart, bringing every thought into subjection to Christ. Now, how does that work? If the Holy Spirit is only a presence and brings people in subjection to Christ, in other words, Christ went there and brought everything in subjection to himself some other way. No. Um, and then a final, some final thoughts. 1772, to reject the Holy Spirit is the, is, are the sins that surpass all others. To reject the Holy Spirit, I'm at line 1772 now. To reject the Holy Spirit, through whose power we conquer the forces of evil, is the sin that surpasses all others. That's the greatest sin. And then we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. She says we need to pray for... And as we have never prayed before for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, for if ever there was a time when we needed this, that baptism, it is now. Is it any wonder? Is it any wonder? Is it any wonder that Satan has worked so hard to counterfeit the Holy Spirit? Basically saying that either it is the noise of the Pentecostal church, or it doesn't really exist. It's what he wants more than anything else, and we should not succumb to it. And, and too often we have discussions with people who perhaps read their Bibles better than we have, but we should be armed with more knowledge, say, hold on, let's look at what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. I had a discussion with someone, that's how I ever got started in this study, and it led me to say, I need to really study to know what the Bible says. I didn't know what I would find when I began. And I didn't know what Ellen White said. I was told what she said. And as I've shared with you, after... You know, more than a thousand pages of quotes. I know what she said pretty well. Thank you. Welcome, brother. We, we have exact number of chairs. You'll have to sit right there. Anyway, and I like this. There's only one quotation like this, 1790. As the saints in the kingdom of God are accepted in the beloved, they hear, Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then the golden hearts are touched and the music flows all through the heavenly host. They fall down and worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's only one statement like that. She also makes one statement where she says, I will pray to the three great worthies. But it's only one time she makes that statement. It's not like you find you know, lots and lots of those statements. 
And then one more, 1797, we cannot render to God supreme love and honor if we do not recognize the Holy Spirit which the Lord sends. Okay, that's a powerful statement. We cannot render to God supreme love and honor if we do not recognize the Holy Spirit which the Lord sends. And I like the last verse, 1803, Acts 9, 5 and 6. How shall we respond? This is Paul. He said, Who art thou, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I would say this morning, it is hard to kick against the evidence. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And for those who've been wondering, study this. I think it's pretty clear. It's unmistakably clear what Ellen White said and what the Bible says on the subject. That's been my experience anyway. Um, any questions on what we've just done on the Holy Spirit? Any questions or comments? We don't have much time. We, we need to go to this booklet. They didn't give us enough time, did they? But we do our best. Okay, so if you don't have a blue booklet, grab a blue booklet. Well, all of you don't have a blue booklet. I sure will hope I have enough. I have more here. Mary Jo, do you need one? No, I'm just getting one. Okay. Does everyone have a blue booklet? I have extras. Okay. Oh, well, I, we're going to save in case anyone else comes in. Come to the booth later if you can. Okay. This is the most complicated part of everything we've studied, okay? I started with the three persons because if you have that strongly established, some of what we're going to discuss is not difficult to understand. But if you've not established the three individual persons, what we go into now would be very hard. And often they want to start at the end of the path instead of at the beginning. Anyway, let's start at line two with, uh, with Moses. And he said, Draw not nigh thither, hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place when thou standest is holy ground. So we need to be very careful with this discussion, because to be honest with you, we understand very little about the three and the one. God sees things completely different than we do, and, and, and we can only see the part that he's chosen to reveal to us. And there's much more. But what we understand is enough to give us assurance of what we believe, okay? But to the person who's looking for reasons to prove it wrong, it won't give enough detail, okay? To the person that's looking for every single thing they could find in the spirit of prophecy or the scriptures that might disagree or whatever, it, it's much harder. And we're not called to answer every single question, okay? Anyway, so line seven. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever. So there is a part that's been given to us. So, the key text in all of this is, or one of them is, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Line 15, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Someone already mentioned this one uh, quotation. It starts about five lines down in the footnote. God is to be acknowledged more from what he does not reveal of himself than from that which is open to our limited comprehension. If men could comprehend the unsearchable wisdom of God and could explain that which he has done or can do, they would no longer give him reverence or fear his power. In divine revelation, God has given to men mysteries that are incomprehensible to commend their faith. This must be so. If the ways and works of God could be explained by finite minds, he would not stand as supreme. Men may be ever searching, ever inquiring, ever learning, and yet there is an infinite beyond. There is an infinite beyond. Mm -hmm. I mentioned this one little text. It's in Job. It says, you know, God says to Job, wherever you want to talk the foundations of the earth, you know, yeah. the picture of God is beyond us. Yeah. You know? He also asked God the question, God says, have you found the deep or are you searching for the deep? And he never did answer Job's question, right? Was he ever told? No. He just asked him enough questions that he couldn't get an answer to, to know that he was ignorant. You know, can you explain why this animal does this versus that animal? And Job was speechless. And probably most of us would be speechless as well. Okay, three quick footnotes at the bottom. 
God is the eternal, line uh, footnote number two, God is the eternal self-existent one. God is a person. Three, Christ is equal with God, infinite and omnipotent, the eternal self-existing Son. And footnote four, the Holy Spirit must also be a divine person, else he could not search out the secrets in, that lie hidden in the mind of God. We are talking about real persons now as we get into this further discussion. So the three in the scriptures, there are clear references to the three in the Old Testament. Now, some of the things that I have shown here in this booklet refer to two people and sometimes three people, because in the Old Testament, uh, the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned much in a very direct way. You find him some, but not in the list like you would in the New Testament. So I want to go over to line 60 as one of them, just line 61 and 62. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So the Spirit of the Lord and rest upon him. We see three persons. Line 70. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect, one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. So we see the one speaking, the servant, and the spirit. Line 75. And now the Lord God and his spirit hath sent me. So it wasn't God just sending him. It was the Holy Spirit sending Christ. Line 79, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. So there we see the three people. Isaiah is especially the important one. So I'm just talking about the fact that you find the three mentioned there. Now, there's something that is sometimes referred to as the plurals of the Old Testament. And there's only a, a very short group of them. Uh, for example, the first one is where God says, and let us make man in our image. They've given a name to that, the plurals of the Old Testament. The, the plurals are very weak evidence, okay? They're not the reason why we can have confidence in the Godhead. They add to our understanding, but if you base all of your hope on that, people can poke holes into that, okay? People say, actually, that refers to something else. But the point of fact is, there are no, those things are called plurals of majesty. Okay, that, that, that in a magisterial way, you, a king could say, we have done such and such. It's a rhetorical we, instead of a, a plural we, okay? But it's been pointed out by those that have studied and know the original languages, that there is no such plural in the Old Testament, okay? That's never used in any other case. So it wasn't, it wasn't something used at that time, apparently. So they say that is a, 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 not, a, not an argument against the, the Godhead, the Trinity. Um, they are weaker evidence. And part of it is that um, they are based on the word Elohim, which can sometimes refer to God, can sometimes refer to angels, can sometimes refer to false gods as well. So it's not consistently used in a certain way, and that's why people say, how can you say that's truly the Godhead when it can refer to a false god just as well? So I share this. I personally find blessing in it, but it's not what I'm going to, to use as my only reason for believing in, in, in the Godhead of three. But let's look at the verses 123, Genesis 1:26, And God said, let us make man in our image, and then the next one, line 123, And God, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become one of us to know good and evil. And Genesis eleven seven, Let us go down, and there confound their language. Let us go down. And uh, line 127, Isaiah 6, 8, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Those are the, the, the plurals that I was referring to. Now, there are references to the three in the New Testament, and that goes without saying. And we're just going to pick out just a few. Line 156, John 3, 33 to 35, he, hath, he that hath received of his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. So we see that all three of them are mentioned in the same verse. Line 160, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Jesus is speaking in reference to his Father and the Holy Spirit. Look at line 179, Acts 10.38. How God, 
appointed Jesus of Nazareth, line 179, Acts 10.38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Then line 197, Romans 8, 16 to 17, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Spirit beareth witness that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. So you see, not just the word God, but it says God <coughs> and joint heirs with Christ. So you see all three individuals are clearly mentioned in that text. Look at line 22, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22. Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ hath anointed us is God, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. And line 229, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with all of you. Amen. Would you agree that we see the three persons in the New Testament? This is a bit of a review, but this is important. Now we're going to move on from that. You can look at these texts on your own. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm reviewing this just a little bit to make sure we all agree on where we are. Look at, I'm going to have you look at just about one of the three statements that I didn't share with you before. Right here, line 435. Line 435. To neglect this work is to insult Jehovah, to grieve the Holy Spirit, and to prove disloyal to Christ. What do you think of that? To neglect this work, whatever was being referred to, is to insult Jehovah, to grieve the Holy Spirit, and to prove disloyal to Christ. You get the sense of three individuals there, don't you? It's not just the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but to grieve, to insult, and to be disloyal. I'm sorry, I talk very fast. Line 436. 436. And then going back to 376. The three are carefully divine, defined, starting at line 377. The Father is all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and is invisible to mortal sight. The Son is all the fullness of the Godhead manifested. The Word of God declares him to be the express image of his person. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Here is shown the personality of the Father. In other words, in Jesus we see what the Father is like. The Father is invisible, she says, but in Jesus we see him. We, we see what he's all about. There's nothing different about you know, this being not Christ, because we've already seen that he's a self-existent eternal son. And then line 383, the comforter that Christ promised to send after he ascended to heaven is the Spirit in all the fullness of the Godhead. So there we see a clear definition of the three, making manifest the power of divine grace <clears throat> to all who receive and believe in Christ as a personal Savior. There are three living persons of the heavenly trio. In the name of these three great powers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those who receive Christ by living faith are baptized, and these powers will cooperate with the obedient subjects of heaven in their efforts to live the new life in Christ. Is there any doubt that when she's speaking of these, the Father, the Son, and the comfort that Christ promised that, that she is referring to anything but three living persons. Now, it's totally clear, right? It's totally clear. There is no ambiguity in what she writes. Uh, she often mentions the three in the same sentence. We've already looked at that. Um, the three were present at the baptism. And I want to read one statement on baptism I mentioned this already, but for those that are new today, 567, and actually 566, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost powers infinite and omniscient. So when she says that power is infinite, she's not just referring to the Father, she's referring to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Powers infinite and omniscient receive those who truly enter into covenant relationship with God. They are present at every baptism. 
So baptism is more than just being put under the water. It is a great covenantal experience where you're making a promise to God and it says all three, three members of the Godhead are there saying, we will help you. You know, it's a wonderful thing that we should preach more in our churches at the time of a baptism. These three all, whoops, I, I, I skipped ahead. They are present at every baptism to receive the candidates who have renounced the world and have received Christ into the soul temple. These candidates have entered into the family of God and their names are inscribed in the Lamb's Book of Life. After the believing soul has received the ordinance of baptism, he is to bear in mind that he is dedicated to God. I'm just going to repeat these words. Dedicated to God, dedicated to Christ, and dedicated to the Holy Spirit. I added that because it was dedicated in one, two, three, but, but dedicated to each one. These three all cooperate in the great work of covenant made by baptism, etc. We don't need to go any further. Now let's talk about the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. When we speak of the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, I'm at line about 632. We're still speaking of the eternal Godhead that consists of three persons. Though there are three distinct persons, and the reason why I I'm reading this is because you have to be careful about what you say with this subject. When we speak of the Lord's own, we're still speaking of the eternal Godhead that consists of three persons, though there are three distinct persons, plural meaning more than one, we describe them as members of the Godhead, singular, never as Godheads. Did you hear me? We don't baptize in the names, we baptize in the name. In doing so, we are merely stating what the Bible teaches on the subject. We must accept the fact that the Bible speaks of three and the Bible speaks of one. And to believe in the three is not to disown the one and to believe in the one changes nothing about the three. You can believe in both because that's what the Bible teaches. And it's considered the great paradox, okay? The great paradox that the Bible can speak of one and can speak of three. Now in the Old Testament, where the Holy Spirit is only mentioned under veiled terms, and we talked the other day about how truth, the revelation of truth is, prog is progressive. You know, God gives small amounts of truth at first and then he adds more. And so when Abraham was leaving from, from the land of Ur of Chaldees, he was only shown a little bit. He was just told to go and he obeyed. And as he went, he learned more, right? God made some covenants with him, etc. And so to the people in the Old Testament, God was frequently spoken of as one God because they lived in a culture of polytheism, okay, where there are multiple gods. And so uh, they were specifically told they were not to be, be worshiping all these gods like their neighbors were. Line 639, the three persons, one God paradox is one of the great mysteries of the Bible and is beyond what has been fully revealed in the scriptures. But the two, the three and the one are perfectly compatible. So you don't need to argue with someone who says the Bible speaks of one God. You do too. You believe in that too. But you also believe that, that that Godhead is also made up of three persons. Okay, the challenge is understanding. But, and this is significant, in comparison to other religions, for example, the Catholic Church, and, and a brother asked me, you know, about the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church speaks of, at one time, if you look at Catholic doctrine, they had different understandings down through history of what they meant by the Trinity. Basically, something to the idea that, that, that the Father generated Christ and that the Holy Spirit progresses or comes out of Christ and the Father. Okay, that's what they believe. They try to explain in detail, and Ellen White says, as to who God is and where he is, the essence of God, God has never seen fit to reveal to us, and therefore we should not worry about what God hasn't told us about, okay? She, she says that, that Christ held a reserve in that regard. We continue. 663, as we will learn, the, the complete unity between the persons of the Godhead allows them to be accurately spoken of as a single entity, though we are not given much information in this regard. And so there are a fair number of statements in the Old Testament regarding one God. But that's not a problem. It was more fleshed out later. So, 
I want to skip ahead just a little bit because of our limited time and talk with you. You know, there's, there's the, uh, I share with you some of the attributes that all three members share with text, and you can look at that later. And for those of you that came in that like to study Ellen White's writings, I discovered just this week where she speaks of how the divine attributes, unlimited as they are, that's a beautiful statement, the divine attributes, unlimited as they are, she says we're exhausted in the plan of redemption. So that's like everything you could imagine about the power of the Godhead, they were exhausted for you and I. To me, that's amazing. So, let's go forward to 844. What does the Lord is one mean? This was very helpful to me when I finally came upon this. And, and for those of you that just came, let me share this as well. When we speak of being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, it's interesting that in other verses of the New Testament, it starts by listing Jesus, and then it mentions the Father, then the Holy Spirit. In other places, it mentions the Holy Spirit first, and then Jesus and the Father. The, the New Testament, Paul had no difficulty with who he mentioned first in the list. To me, that's very helpful when we, when we think about the equality of the three members of the Godhead. It's not like the Father's always with the, with the big capital letter, and everyone else has a little smaller letter though there's something beautiful about their relationship, which we want to look at now. Um, anyway, we continue. Yes. Okay. Why have we uh, just to pray to the Father, yeah. to the Son, yeah. with the aid of the Holy Spirit? Yeah. Isn't that somewhat of a hierarchy? It would appear to be a hierarchy, but when yeah. Paul speaks of them, he doesn't always list them. They had specific functions, but it doesn't mean one, one was greatly more equal than the other. What I wanted to bring out is what we see in the Trinity is submission in a relationship of equals, which is a beautiful thing. That's just what marriage is supposed to be. What? That's just what marriage is supposed to be. Exactly. It's a beautiful picture of marriage. It is submission in a relationship of equals. That's found in the Godhead. And to me, that's a beautiful thought. I don't know if that's helpful or not, brother, but... Anyway, um, so first, and I want to just show you the list of the things that we find. When we think of the, um, the one God blessings, there's perfect loving relationships. I have it on the screen. Perfect unity, diversity, self-effacing humility, and submission in a relationship of equals. And I have these listed in the booklet as well. And there are probably more, but those are the things that struck me when I was thinking about this. So there are perfect loving relationships between the members of the Godhead. And, and we find that, that the Bible says that God was in Christ reconciling the world. And Ellen White says that the, the disciples came to the point where they sensed to what degree the Father suffered when Jesus died on the cross. He said they eventually came to realize that there was such a tight connection between the Father and Christ that he suffered as well. Okay? And I appreciated finding that statement, actually, since I've been here this week. So there was loving relationships. Um, paragraph or footnote 14, God withheld, well, we have to go back. We have to go back. Line 845. The one of Deuteronomy 6.4, Echad, refers to uniqueness and unity. Okay? And I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, but here's the point. We say that a married couple comes together and the two shall what? Shall become one. Okay, that oneness is a oneness of unity, not a mathematical oneness. And the word echad that is there in and the Lord is one is actually a, 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 a statement of unity more than the mathematical one. The, the statement of, of, of math is a different word. It's yachid, okay? So in the Bible, we find that, that, that the husband will leave, you know, and, and, and will join, and the two shall become one. And then it speaks in another spot in the Bible where a group of men came together, and they came together as one person. That's what the word echad is all about. So when it says God is one, it doesn't mean that there is only one God, but there is this, this unity found within God. Okay? What? A singular purpose. Well, it's, we're added more than that. It's in character and a few other things. But, but you're right. But you're right. But that's an important distinction that many Adventists do not understand. 
okay, about that. And that's in the footnote number 13. Uh, Yahid refers to uniqueness as an only son or an only child in Proverbs 4 and Zechariah 12. And you can see those, those verses, uh, 858, when I was my father's son tender and the only one in the sight of my mother. And Zechariah 12, 863, mourn for me as one mourneth for his only son. Okay, there's the mathematical uh, one that, that we were referring to. <coughs> so we find loving relationships going on. And then we find perfect unity. Line 898, the three divine persons of the Godhead, line 898, are perfectly united in nature, character, and purpose. There's the quotation, brother. The Godhead presents a unity that is so complete that it can be correctly expressed in the singular. Though they are three, they are also referred to as one God. Line, paragraph 16 is the paragraph from Patriarchs and Prophets where it talks about one in nature, character, and purpose, if you're wondering where that came from. Okay? We also find diversity. Look at line, at footnote 18. Christ's oneness with the Father was a constant joy to God, for he knew that there was in the world one who would not misrepresent him. In Christ he beheld a reflection of his own character, and it was that his followers might have the same oneness that was Christ's great desire for this oneness he prayed. Um, and then the next one from letter 317, just a later paragraph, the oneness existing between the Father and the Son does not affect the distinct personality of each, and though believers are to be one with Christ, their identity and personality is recognized through the whole of this prayer. So, though we're called to be in unity, it's to be unity, you know, with a diversity, because God has made each one of us individually in a particular way. Now, I'm going really fast. I understand that. What have we learned so far about this oneness? Okay, there's one, there's three, and that the echad word speaks of a, a unitary sense, and there's another word for the, the mathematical, and then we see in these quotations what she was referring to. First uh, John 1, 3, that which we've seen and heard and heard declare we unto you, that ye may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And notice this interesting quotation at footnote 19. All through the Scriptures, the Father and the Son are spoken of as two distinct personages. You will hear men endeavoring to make the Son of God a what? A non-entity. Even in her day, they were trying to get rid of Christ. He and the Father are one, but they are two personages. They're two different People. Did you see where I was reading? I was at footnote number 19 at the bottom of 30, and then it goes over to page 31. It's just the way the software works. And then 918, we find self-effacing humility. In the Godhead, we find perfect unity between the three distinct persons. This could only be possible because the three are completely rooted in humility. In the very first verse of the Bible, we find the self-effacing humility in the declaration that God created the heavens and the earth. But somehow all three were present. The Father was present, Christ was present, and the Spirit was present as well. And in one of our first classes, I talked about the fact that, uh, that we know that it was the Holy Ghost because the word used for the, the Spirit hovering is the same one that's used with referring to Bezal, the, the, the man who was given the Spirit of God to make the objects for the sanctuary. And that there's a different word for the word wind. Some people say, actually, that's just the word wind, but the word wind does not fit. And he used that same word in some other places of the scripture, and it makes no sense at all. Okay, so we, we can be quite confident that, that, that creation was the Holy Spirit. So there is a self-effacing uh, humility. Turn the page. There is also, and I think this is one of the most beautiful part, there is submission in a relationship of equals. Though they are equals, the Father apparently plays the lead role. Christ voluntarily humbled and submitted himself to the Father and continues that submission while seated at the right hand of the Father. And the Holy Spirit is in voluntary submission to the Father and Christ. When that happened, why that happened, we haven't been told. We only are told that he's been a son from the beginning. Okay, Somehow, with God's 
what is foreknowledge when you know everything of the past and all of the future? That's, that's, we, we can't really understand that, but apparently he's always been the, and here's the key word, the eternal son. Not just a son, but the eternal son. You know, if you just focus on the word son, then you could be mistaken, but, but he's the eternal son, which makes him different than other sons. Okay? And then I listed some verses there that speak to, to uh, his coming to do the will of God. And then we also find perfect other-centered love. The, the, it's clear that God not only loves, but he's the source of all love, and so uh, we'll just leave that there. So what's the per personal application here? We should be loving. We should be united. We must maintain our individuality. I'm at line 971 and going onwards. We should be loving. We should be united. We must maintain our individuality, and which is our diversity. We should be humble. And we should be willing to submit to those in rightful authority as delineated in the Bible. We get the sense that Christ found great joy in submitting to his Father. And like I said, it is the supreme example of submission in a relationship of equals. The only true God. The only true God. The suggestion is made when Jesus in John 17 spoke of the only true God, that, that apparently the Father was the only true God and that Jesus had some other kind of lesser role and, and often uh, you know, a beginning is, is, is pointed to as, as the origin of this idea. Have we learned things in, this, in these sessions already that have suggested that Jesus could have had no, no beginning? Yeah, we've made it very clear. He, it says that he had an everlasting to everlasting existence. So this idea of being born at some time is not possible. Have we made it clear that he is a self-existent son? that he is equal to God. Then is it possible that when he speaks of a true God, he's suggesting that he himself was not God? No, he can't be contrary to himself. He, he speaks the truth. I'd like to suggest that this comes from a quote in Jeremiah 10, which is at line 1021. And actually, let me just, just review the list for those that are, are new to us. And will you give me just a few extra minutes this morning? Yes. Just a few? Yes. Thank you. 10.04, as we've already seen one, Christ is clearly spoken of as God in both the Old and the New Testament. It is clear beyond question. Two, as God, Christ is self-existent. Three, Christ is clearly spoken of as being equal to God. Christ's incarnation and ministry were full of supernatural events. Christ made claims and gave assurances that only God could make. Christ is clearly spoken of as accepting the worship of human beings. We are told that Christ came to earth, I'm at line 1013, as man who will ascend to heaven as God. Same line. We will welcome Christ as God at the time of the second coming. We're told that we'll worship the Father Christ and the Holy Spirit in heaven. And Ellen White even says that Jesus loves to have us pray to him, which some people found difficult. But she makes that statement, especially in regards to children. And I think we all agreed after we had our study in Christ that Christ is God, right? That is so self-evident that when we hear the statement, well, Christ wasn't really God, it's going against all of the scriptures. And if that is true, then we know that when the statement true God is made, it has to mean something other than, than the Father is the only true God. And I believe it's from a quotation in Jeremiah 10, 10 to 11, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting King. I'm at line 1022. At his wrath the earth shall tremble, and the nation shall not be able to abide his indignation. Thus shall ye say unto them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. In the Old Testament, the use of the one God idea is used, but that didn't mean that in the same Old Testament there were not references that clearly showed that Jesus and the Holy Spirit were all part of the, of the Godhead, okay? And so here, the one God is in comparison to the pagan gods. There was only one true God. There was only one, to use a different word, one authentic God in comparison to all the other gods that they were worshiping back then. 
It wasn't a comparison between the members of the Godhead. It was a comparison between one religion and all the other religions. Does that make any sense? Your thoughts? Okay. I believe this, you know, the book of Revelation is filled with what? Quotations. And I believe that when Jesus was, was speaking and praying, that he was not speaking from our vantage point. He did not have a New Testament with the Gospels and the writings of Paul and all the other things that, that help amplify what we, and, and which have helped us come to the understandings of our day. So when he spoke of the one true God, he was making a statement about an, the authentic religion compared to even what was going on in his day. Does that make any sense? Now it's interesting. I believe that what this is all about, and if you look at 1055, at the end of his ministry, Jesus implores the Father to reinstate the glory that he, Christ, had prior to his humbling himself and coming to earth. He says, Father, reinstate, restore to me the glory I had before. Why? Because he was equal with God. He said, please do this. And he was restored, right? It wasn't a prayer about diminishment. It wasn't a, a statement of, you know, I, I want everyone to know that actually I wasn't really God. He says, Father, allow me to be seen for the full glory I had before. And uh, the day of Pentecost, uh, this was new information to me as I studied, was actually the signal that Christ had been, I don't know what the word is, you know, when, when, you, when you place a monarch on the throne, there's a great celebration. That was when his mediatorial kingdom began, if I can put it that way. And I could show you quotes, it's in the, in, in the longer document. But that was heaven's signal that something amazing had happened in heaven, okay? Something amazing had happened in heaven. And that was the, was the answer to what he was praying in John 17, 1-5. Now, what are your thoughts? We have a lot more study. What? We have a lot more study. We have a lot more study. We might spend eternity. And I've tried hard to make this as simple and yet true as I possibly could. There are much more complicated explanations of this. Brother. The great controversy context. Yes. Satan is jealous of Christ. Yeah. And so he does everything he can to be little. Yes, yes, yes. Now, one last question. And I think you know the answer already. Was Christ the literal flesh and blood DNA son of God, son of the Father? No. But do we believe and find joy that he is the son of God? Amen. Amen. It does not shake our belief at all in that, right? Because he chose that relationship. And as we discussed, because it teaches us about the relationship that the Father wants to have with us, okay? We don't know how they came to that decision. We don't know when it happened, right? But we know that he's been considered the Son from the beginning. But because he is self-existent with life, original, unborrowed, underived, he's not a son in the way that we understand son, okay? Yes? We mentioned DNA wasn't the DNA of the Father. But was it the DNA of Jesus in heaven? Did he, was his DNA placed inside of Mary? That's a different different question. <laughs> and, and I'm not arguing with you on that. You know, the, what I explained to someone the other day was I said, this wall and that wall are both made of the same substance, but they're two different walls. Okay, and so they both had this eternal substance, but it didn't mean they were, that they were somehow fused together in some way. They were two distinct people, just like I have certain cells and you have some of the same cells because that's what makes us live as human beings, right? Mm -hmm. But it doesn't turn us into, you know, just fused whatever. Yes, sister? I feel like your class has opened my eyes to how uh, God works so hard to show how much he loves us. Absolutely, and that's really part of, of what it was all about. So. I don't want to go longer. Any final questions? You know, we were asked a few questions. Um, if the man Christ Jesus was not the, 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 the Lord God Almighty, someone asked that question. I believe that she kind of looks at the word God Almighty more about the Father than Christ, but I'm not, I, I, if, I didn't have a chance to study that like I should have. 
And the firstborn of every creature, what does firstborn mean? It meant different things, right? Israel was considered firstborn in the Bible. Uh, Jesus was considered the firstborn of those that are resurrected, so it depends on the context of the verse. I'm sorry, but we haven't had enough time, really. And some of you haven't been here at all, so you've missed much of it. But I have full Bible studies at, the, at, the, at my booth. But anyway. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you. Thank, thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. You don't know how much I prayed about this. You don't know how much I prayed about this. So if anyone's blessed, and I tell you, I, I share this with fear and trembling because I do not want to misrepresent God. That's not what I want. And I don't want to start a, a fight with anyone else. I believe we should look at the evidence and then say, God, what do we make of it? And I think the evidence is so clear there really is no reason to, to, to argue. It's just, please read it, and, and you tell me. And like Paul, say, Lord, now what do you want me to do with what I've learned? Now, if you'd like to have further discussion with me, please meet me afterwards, but I want to have a word of prayer in closing. And if you don't have some booklet, I, I have some of them with me. I have no more of the purple ones, but I have some of the other ones here too. They're all being recorded, and you can... Listen to them there, and we're going to make sure that the PDFs that go with that are available with the recordings as well. So let me kneel. Father in heaven, this has been a bit of a, a bit of a marathon in terms of information, and I have severely over-provided in many ways. And so my friends here are going to have to think, and they can look at the Bible studies as well. The Bible studies aren't perfect. I saw where I made some mistakes in them. Uh, but Lord, I believe what's important is there. And I just ask that you would bless them as they study, bless them, Father, as they talk with others. Most of all, bless them in their own relationship with you, Father, that they can rejoice that there are three living persons, Lord, who, who made a commitment, even if they didn't fully understand at the time of their baptism, that are working to help them. Lord, I want to go to heaven soon. And I pray that this issue, which has been sadly a dividing issue in the church, will become a point of great unity by faith somehow. Help us, Lord, to become ambassadors for the truth with your love and, and, and with your demeanor. Thank you for those that have come. Bless us as we go and help us, Lord, to continue sharing that which we've learned and myself too. And thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.